0: You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. We are going to be continuing in our story of 1 Samuel, but in a slightly different way. This is going to be a little bit of a a background and a uh, flash-forward. Fast-forward, flash-forward, I don't know, either way. Um, We only have two chapters left in 1 Samuel, and I'm so eager to finish, it's been quite a journey, but I want to make sure that we're doing things all in their right timing. And so we don't want to ignore where we are now, a week away from Easter, and the significance of that within this great story that God has laid out before us, this account of the whole world and the meaning of it and how we fit into this. And so I wanted to look at um, the significance of David and all the people that led up to him and how, what that has to do with Jesus. And so we've been talking about David and Saul and Samuel for about a year now, and it's been quite, quite an adventure together. But David is kind of this middle character. He's very significant, but he came after a bunch of other people that God zoomed in on from time to time. And it all originated out of the garden with Adam and Eve. God said, hey... I've got this wonderful, beautiful world for you to take care of and enjoy with me. It's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. Don't eat from that tree. Let's go forward. (laughs) And they went, that sounds great. I'm going to eat from that tree. And God went, what did you do? You have to suffer the results of this now. There's a consequence to this now. And so they were expelled from God's presence. And when that happened, he made a promise to Eve. He said, someday from your womb, there will be a seed. That will restore this relationship. And as we do with humanity, when anybody tells us something, we assume it will happen as soon as it possibly can happen. And so they assumed when Cain was born, this is it. We're going to be going back into the garden any day now because he's going to restore us. So much so that by the time their second son came around, Abel, that name means breath, and it's just like, pointless. It's not, not really, you don't really have any point here. We needed Cain, and we've got him. And I think, wow, poor Abel. And then what ends up happening with Abel later on, it's like, wow, poor Abel. Um, but things didn't go the way that they could have gone. They didn't go the, way they, the best possible way they could have. They went the way that we chose to go. So we kind of back out of the picture for a moment. We go um, sky high. We see that all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, over a good period of time, the world just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And God said, yeah, that's not going to work. So we zoom back in on Noah. We renew this promise. We renew this idea of the way the world was supposed to be. And God says, we're going to wipe everything clean, except for Noah, because there's always a remnant saved. In every part of the story, there's a remnant saved. In this case, it was Noah. We reaffirmed the original promises that we're going to be a blessing to the whole world, could be fruitful, multiply, do this thing the way that I told you to do it. And we didn't again. And things go all bad again after this. And he zooms back in on Abraham. We renew this promise again. Through you, the whole world is going to be blessed. Now, not through the man Abraham himself, but through his offspring. It's an allusion to who is going to come and bless the whole world world. And then we kind of have a hop skip and a jump over Isaac and Jacob, and then we have a renewal of the promise once more in Judah, Jacob's son, that the scepter won't depart from you. All nations are going to bow before Judah, but not the man Judah, his offspring. We continued on and we got to a portion of the story that we actually began with almost a year ago, the book of Ruth, because we get Judah's great 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 I don't know the exact number of greats. You get it grandson Boaz and he's the last one in this lineage of the promise and he doesn't have any sons and he's an old man and what is going to happen here and that's what the whole book of Ruth is pointing at is how God keeps his promises and he made a way and so Ruth ends up marrying Boaz they have the son Obed. Um, Obed has Jesse and Jesse has David and that's the David we've been talking about for this last year now and the significance of his life and through the lineage of David is where we get Mary and Joseph, whom the promise of the Savior being born to them is, and that's Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so that's that's what we're celebrating next week at Easter. We're celebrating the promise being fulfilled. We can get caught up in part of what Jesus did. We can get caught up in the personal, individual salvation that we have, the forgiveness of our sins, but that's not the whole picture. It's really important. It's really (laughs) important to each and every one of us. But on top of that, it's the restoration of relationship with Almighty God, being able to enter back into his presence as individuals. And we get to celebrate what he did in making that possible. And so we want to hone in on that of what was going on during this time. What was leading up to this most significant event? This event marks our history. When we counted backwards to now we count forwards was this event right in the middle. B, C, A, D, it's all centered at Jesus. Jesus at the cross. And so when we look at the lead up to this, this time period, I looked at my notes from a year ago. What did I do the week before Easter? I covered the entire week before Easter, all seven days. Do you know how, that's like seven chapters of Scripture. I can't even go in, I can't even keep on time with one chapter in Scripture. What was I thinking? We made it work. I had to skip everything, basically. We hit the highlights throughout. So today I'm going to focus in on one day, the day before the crucifixion, the day before the great sacrifice Jesus made. And it's, all, it's really going to hone in on that evening beforehand and th- the four things that happened within that evening. For it's a meal, it's a time of prayer, it's a betrayal, and it's a trial. So let's jump in and see what Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, did on that day and what we can learn from him through it. Matthew 26, starting in verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So this was happening at the end of their meal, this celebration, this time together. But what was that meal? Is it just dinner? Is it just a Sunday afternoon time? And the answer is no, it's not. It wasn't a Sunday afternoon time. It was a Thursday night time. But was it just another meal? Absolutely not. This is Passover. They're celebrating Passover together. And I grew up hearing that word and having no idea what that meant, what the significance of that is. What is, what is Passover? Because we don't really... Celebrate Passover anymore. We celebrate the few days later of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. But what was Passover? This was the meal they took to celebrate when God brought them out of Egypt. It's talking about the final plague that went through Egypt when the Spirit of God passed through and every firstborn child was taken, unless they had the lamb that they took, the sacrificial lamb that they prepared, and they put its blood on the, the posts of the doorway and the Lord Spirit passed over that house, signific- signifying the forgiveness of those that were there to not have to pay that price. It's why we call Jesus the Passover lamb, the lamb that was slain, because now he passes over each and every one of our sins when we call upon him as our Lord and Savior. We're f- accepting the sacrifice that was made. And so that's so significant because Jesus is the fulfillment of this memory, of this ceremony. They took part in year after year after year, remembering what God did, remembering his covenant, remembering that they're his people. Jesus is the final time that this has to happen, the most ultimate sacrifice for all of us for all time. And it's celebrated with a meal and a new meal is instituted to match in with the New Covenant. We had the old covenant before, we had Passover, now we celebrate communion together. We take the cracker and we take the juice, celebrating what happened with the new covenant which is about to take place. And it's a fulfillment of the prophecy out of Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. In this next part, circle, highlight whatever you need to do, but remember it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the overarching emphasis of the entirety of Scripture. This is the desired plan. This is the intent. This is the purpose that he would be our God and we would be his people. That was the intent of the old covenant. That is still the intent of the new covenant. It's a renewal of this idea. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This began with the old covenant, with the law that was handed down on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, love God with everything, don't steal, don't murder. These things that we're aware of and know, and 600 more of them on top of that. And there was a purpose to them. There was a purpose that mankind completely missed. It's the ultimate failure that we had with God. It's the continued failure that we have with God as we're missing his point in when he's giving these things to us. When they ask Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? They're trying to catch him and every time he says, love God with everything and your neighbor as yourself. That's the ultimate point of all of this. We find it right in Leviticus 19. It wasn't hidden. It was right there for them to know and they missed it. Leviticus 19 verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, you shall not strip your vineyards bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, I am the Lord your God, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God, I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The entire intent was always to love one another, to be the example to the rest of the world of what God's people can be like, those that love and care and consider and bring each other along. That was the example they were supposed to be. That was the blessing that was supposed to be there to all nations is to see God's love through mankind. And they missed it. Missed it so much that he eventually had to be exiled from the land. God couldn't allow them to continue this way and act like it was fine. And that's why Jesus has come back to make a better way, a new covenant with us, a renewal of this idea that we might know and understand truly what he desired of us. And we can see this out of John 13 and John 3. John 13, beginning in verse 34, a new commandment. I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We go back to John 3, beginning in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the new covenant. This is the idea. This is him being our God and us being his people by showing the rest of the world his love. That's the new covenant that's what we remember that's what we take time to consider that's why Jesus came that we have this relationship and we would be his people so they took this meal together they took this time to remember and consider and enjoy who they were together as his people and then there was a time of prayer again in Matthew 26 now in verse 38 Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, this next part, highlight, circle, whatever you need to do to remember it, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me in one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This time of prayer comes exactly out of how he told us to pray. Right out of the Sermon on the Mount. I think it's Matthew 6. He says, Our Father, thou art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is what he's asking God to do. He's being completely dependent on the Father. He could do it himself, but as the example to us, he is dependent on his Father, going to him at this time, your will, not mine. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, and he knows what tomorrow brings. He knows he's facing the crucifixion. He knows he's facing excruciating pain. The word excruciating comes from that, from the cross, from the crucifixion. It was a word used to describe the level of pain you were in, and he's going to face that. The the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We have to realize that all of us want to do the godly thing. We want to follow God's wise pattern. We want to. Our spirit desires it. But the flesh is weak. I'm going to assume that everybody in here is on the same page when I say nobody enjoys pain. If you enjoy pain, there are doctors. It's okay. (laughs) Nobody enjoys pain. It's a body's natural reaction to keep you from harming yourself. And so the desire is to flee from it. The desire is to get away from it. But there are some difficult things in life that will be painful that are still required of us, that still cause us to rise up and face it. And this is one of those times. And when that time happens, when these difficulties arise in our life, it can be very normal to be turning inward, to, to buckle down and just push through it, and I'm just going gonna, gonna to work through, and I'm sorry, I don't have time for this, I can't go to that, I can't do anything now, I just got to focus on getting through this time, and we become very insular, We push people away during those times because it's difficult and I just don't want to answer any questions And when we really should be pressing in. In the most difficult time, he's about to face this. What does he do? He gets close to his father and he gathers around his friends. This is the call to us, to not push away but to start pushing in. Out of Matthew 11, it says, "'Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.'" Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's calling us to lay down the impossible burden the world puts upon us, because the world will try to be enticing and saying, you can be anything you want to be and do anything you want to do, as long as you never mess up, ever. As long as you never, ever make a mistake, because we're not going to let you live that down. But you could do whatever you want. It's the impossible burden the world puts upon us. And even more so with the advent of technology, the idea that there are cameras in everybody's pocket and videos for everything, anything you do, somebody's probably recording it. You just make that general assumption. Anything you say, any mistake won't be forgotten by the world. That's the impossible burden of perfection that they're requiring. And there isn't forgiveness. There isn't exception. There isn't mercy within it. And God's saying, I'm, I'm inviting you to lay that at my feet. That's an impossible burden. I'm not asking an impossible burden of you. I'm asking you to walk with me. I know you can't do it already. I know it's too much already. Walk with me. Be yoked to me. And we might look at that and go, Lord, that's another burden. I can't handle this weight. How do I handle that weight? Because Jesus is carrying it. You're yoked to Jesus. A yoke is a piece of wood that holds two beasts together. He's saying, be yoked to me. I've got a better way for you. I've got an easier burden for you. I've got a better path for you to walk on. And sometimes we're going to walk up the hill and it's going to be hard and you're not going to like it. And you're going to want to jerk to the left or to the right. But I tell you what, jesus is stronger than you are and if you're yoked to him meaning you're tied to that and you try to go to the left or the right and he's going straight guess where you're going you're going straight because you've yoked yourself to jesus he's going to take you down the path you need to walk and you're not always going to understand lord we've been going up this hill for two days i'm tired there's a look there's a stream in the ravine but you can't see around the corner. There's rocks. You're going to break your leg if we go that way. We need to go over this hill. It's safer for you this way. It's going to lead to good pastures this way. Yeah, this way's harder and you're going to sweat more, and all the other people are going the other way and it seems so much easier, but this is the best way for you to be pressing in with me through it. And that's my encouragement that when we are not in the most difficult times in our lives, and we're thinking about what might be, and maybe, well, what if this happened? I do this, or what if I this happened? I do that. To not focus as much on that, and more focus on your how your relationship is with Jesus. To make sure you're sure in your convictions of faith. Because I've spoken to people who have gone through those travesties in life, true horrors. And no matter how prepared you think you are, if you have not walked through it, I want you to accept this right now. You do not understand. I've heard the stories I can't say I understand even though hearing the stories I have not walked through it I can't say well I would definitely do this in that situation no you don't know we don't really know but what we don't need to happen in that time is a crisis of faith to be questioning God at that time we need to be firm in our foundation so that we can continue to walk with God through it and he can take us out of it stronger than we were before because it's the strength that he provides. Because there's going to be things that happen that you are blindsided by that should have never happened by people that should have never done it. And thus we come to the betrayal. Continuing on in Matthew 26. Starting in verse 50. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from the other accounts that this is Peter. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? I'm God, Peter. You think I can't handle this if I wanted to? If you live by the sword, you're dying by the sword. If you go against this crowd, they're just going to kill you. I need you alive, Peter. They're going to kill you later, but not right now. (laughs) You've got a job yet to do, and if you live by the sword, you're dying by the sword. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. There's two things that Jesus spoke on within this time of betrayal. He actually didn't address being betrayed. He addressed Peter living by the sword and what that means in our life. I want you to consider for a moment what a sword is because none of us go around carrying swords anymore, so we have to look at this a little bit allegorically. A sword is a weapon. A sword, no matter how you use it, cannot be used as an instrument of mercy. It's not in any way its purpose. It can be used for judgment. It can be, co- it can be used to bring people punishment for wrongdoing. And it can be used to defend against wrongdoing. And it can also be used as a weapon to oppress and to subjugate and cause pain. Now, this might be a literal weapon. It might be a figure wep- weapon. It might be you exerting power over others. It might be you gathering a group, and because there's more of us than you, you have to do what we say, whether for good or for evil. It's a weapon, and you can't use that for mercy. You can use it for justice and righteousness' sake, but not, it's not a merciful item. And we're called, we have to remember what we're called to, What our purpose is here. What we want to do is not always going to line up with what we need to do is not always going to line up with what we want to do. Because when we see injustice, we want to live by the sword. And I want you to consider for a moment what Jesus said to us out of Matthew 7, verse 1 through 2. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. When you live your life, you will get to make choices on how you walk through it. To either cast judgment, to have fierce righteousness. Righteousness is good. But do you have mercy in your life? Do you ever show mercy? Because when you make a mistake, not if, when you make a mistake. However you have lived will be how others respond to you. Do you want the chance of mercy? Or do you just want to be cast out at the first mistake you make? To be shunted aside. To not live a pattern of restoration, redemption, forgiveness. That's part of the prayer. Forgive us as we forgive others. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. We're called to forgive. We're called to extend that mercy. We don't, we don't continue returning back to bad choices over and over again and bad situations over again if that's what's going on in a relationship with somebody. But we can forgive them and help them move into a place of health. But that should be the purpose, not, yeah, I forgive you, but you're never going to be a part of my life anymore. We have a God of restoration and redemption. That's what he's calling us to live by. If you live by that sword, you're dying by that sword too. And at the end, he addresses the crowd. And he addresses what they're doing. I was there day by day in the light with plenty of witnesses around. If what I was doing was wrong, why didn't you seize me then? Because what they're doing now is wrong. They know it's wrong. That's why they're in the dark. They don't want their evil exposed. They don't want anybody else asking questions. We just don't like you, and we want to push you out of the way. And he's not allowing that darkness to stand. He's calling it out as it is. And we see this back in John 3. I might have misquoted first service. I think I said Matthew 3. John 3 verse 19 says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And that's what we're called to do as well is to expose darkness when we come across it, to not condone it, to not say it's okay. I'm not saying you go and search it out everywhere because that will become your entire life because it's everywhere. But when you come across it in your life, we don't say, hey, you know, that's all right. But our culture says the opposite. And I can convince you of this if you're not certain with one word. Snitch. You know what a snitch is? Someone who exposed the evil that other people are doing. And we have turned that word into something despicable. Into something that nobody wants to be. I'm no snitch. You can trust me to not tell about all the awful things you're doing in your life. You can trust me to cover up the crimes you're committing. I'm no snitch. We have created a culture that says, protect the guilty person because they're your friend. Not expose the darkness with light. Not to go to them and say, what you're doing is wrong. And for your highest, for your best, I need you to know this and I need to encourage you to repent and go the other direction and not do that anymore. Because it's not beneficial for you. It's not beneficial for anyone around you for you to continue in that. But our culture says just cover it up. Just go along. Don't rock the boat. We're not called to that. We're not called to cover up the darkness and say it's okay. We're not called to continue along with the lie and pretend everything's going to be all right because it's not. If they continue in that pattern or if you are being accused and you continue in the pattern that you are, we have to remember faithful are the wounds of a friend. It will wound you. It will hurt to hear it. It's going to hurt them to hear it. They don't want to. People don't want the wicked things exposed but it's for the best and the highest. It's for their health and their wellness. It's to bring goodness into the world, light into the world, and not perpetuate darkness, which leads us to the trial. Again, Matthew 26 and verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. They couldn't find anybody that agreed with anybody else in what they were saying on anything that Jesus did that deserved death. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last, two came forward. And that's important. Old Testament scripture specifically states you must have two people in order to commit someone to death. You can never do it on the, um, the witness of one. And said, this man said I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. We shall read that and go. So, because there's nothing about that statement that deserves death. It's an odd statement. It's an audacious statement. But there's nothing that says that he should die because of that statement. That's not the heart of what they're trying to get at here. How can you do that? They're trying to trap him in something, and we're going to get to it right here. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, which is Jesus, which is a little comical. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. That part is significant, because the Messiah, the Son of God, the promised Savior, will be God himself. And if you claim that you're God, and that's not true, that is blasphemy and is deserving death unless it's true, which it is. But here's the crux of it. They don't want him to be God. They don't want him to be the Messiah. They don't want to see the light because they like their life the way it is. If we look at what Jesus did the whole week leading up to this, and I encourage you to do so, Jesus poked and poked and poked and poked and poked the bear over and over and over over again, pointing out the deficiencies of what they were doing as the leaders and what they shouldn't have been doing. And so what he was taking away is their comfort and what they wanted to continue in. And they didn't like it. They didn't want to be rubbed along the way. They didn't want the darkness exposed. They didn't really care whether he was actually God. They had just convinced themselves he wasn't because if he was, that means their life would forever change. and They couldn't accept that. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And this is injustice because he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the promised Savior of the world. And so what they're accusing him of is untrue. And he has to now endure this. This is the example set forth. Endure the injustice. No matter how much you can or desire to raise that sword and attack, he's calling us to endure. Out of 1 Peter 3, it says to us, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love a tender heart and a humble mind do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling but on the contrary bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing for whoever desires to love life and see good days let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit when somebody comes it against you and accuses you, and reviles you, and says nasty, awful things about you, I know the desire is just to dish it right on back because it will feel so good to do so. Be vindicated. I am not going to let you do this to me. And he's calling us to a higher road here. He's calling us to not return evil for evil, not to return reviling for reviling, but have just honesty and gentleness with our speech and it is a sacrifice to do so and you're not going to want to do it because it will feel so much better to say what you really want to say to give him a piece of your mind and he's saying hold back let him turn away from evil and do good let him seek peace and pursue it so when you do engage the only time you do go on the offensive is to restore to bring repentance, to bring them to Jesus, to show them light and love with the idea that they will come back to God or come to God for the very first time. That's the purpose that we go forward. That's the purpose when we come out to them is to pursue peace with them. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and their ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Everyone can kind of understand that if you've done something wrong and you have to suffer for that that that's just the way it is yep I was wrong I've got to pay for this now we, we own that nobody really wants to suffer for doing the right thing no one wants to do what's just and honorable and good and have to pay for that it doesn't feel right it feels like an injustice because it is And what he's saying here is if this happens, if you do have to suffer injustice for doing what was right, be ready to give an account for the hope that lies within you. Be gentle, be respectful during these times, despite what our desire might be. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Never in any situation is it the right choice to conform to the way of the world. That will never be the wise decision. We're always called to godliness, to goodness, to taking a higher road, to forgiveness, to mercy, acceptance of others because of what Christ has done for us. It's better to suffer than return evil. It's better to suffer than to become what we were. We have been called new. We are a new creation in Christ. We're not what we were before. We do this because of what he's done, because he is the Messiah. He is our future and hope. Out of Isaiah 42, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands. Wait for his law. He's our future. He's our hope. He is the one that came to redeem us and he said to us, do the same. Love people the same way I have loved you. When you want to live by that sword, when you want to cry out against the injustice, remember what he did on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And so as we move into this week leading up to Easter, we have this opportunity to celebrate the wonderful, great things that he's done, the ability to have him in our lives. I am I would implore you to invite others around you. Invite them to come taste and see that the Lord is good. Out of Psalm 34, verse 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Amen? Would you stand with us?